Hello, Dr. Ricky Aronson, and welcome to another episode of Happy Healthy Ever After, a seriously humorous guide to heterosexual love, gender differences, and sex. Welcome to Happy Healthy Ever After, episode two. Today, I'll be covering why so-called gender stereotypes are the genetic blueprint for human survival and not sexist at all. This is such a broad topic that I'll be covering it over three episodes. Today, in part one, I'll be talking about theory to understand how men and women differ and the reasons for this. Now, I'm going to challenge the negativity around so-called gender stereotypes. They are not about sexism or socialization, but straightforward and obvious biology. And for the most part, they're miraculous and beautiful. I'll get to what constitutes sexist gender roles closer to the end. But let's start with some important concepts. Stereotyping is an absolute survival necessity for humans. It's how we understand the world, and there are many advantages of pattern recognition. So gender stereotyping is actually a normal, natural human expression. Surviving out in the wild requires pattern recognition. If you're hunting, you need to notice a movement in the water or you're not going to catch a fish. If you're out in the bush hunting, you need to notice when something sounds or feels different or you're going to fall victim to predation. Even if you're tasting food, you need to recognize when something is out of the ordinary, this doesn't taste right. In most cases, you're talking about something's gone off, but you'd also really like to know if your spouse is trying to poison you. Humans are fundamentally designed to recognize patterns. Not only is this required for survival, but also for social functioning. We need to recognize patterns in social convention and follow them to fit in. We recognize body language stereotypes, what the average angry human being looks like, what someone looks like when they're happy. We recognize stereotypical tones. This enables us to build relationships and relate to other people. And it's all based on stereotypes, not individuals. But beyond that, to understand the world around us, humans have to categorize by stereotype. We put all the animals, the plants, biology into tables, under headings, the periodic table. Everything we do is about making the world more understandable because by understanding the world better, we can control our environment better, which gives us a better chance to survive and also reduces our anxiety. Importantly, to enable communication, we have to stereotype. Any word that we use has a certain stereotype to it, whether we're talking about someone going for a walk. What does walk really mean? I mean some people walk faster, some people walk slower, people have different patterns, some people walk with one leg, but we overall understand the stereotypical meaning of what walking is. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to communicate. And it's the same with masculine and feminine. They are not political words, but rather ways that we communicate certain stereotypes in the average male and female. Now, I've always found the human brain's ability to recognize stereotypes and patterns quite miraculous. When you're bringing up a baby, after a short while, they learn to recognize, for example, trucks. It doesn't matter whether they're seeing a picture of a truck on a wall or an actual truck driving down the road or a cartoon image of a truck on a screen of a television. They come to recognize stereotypical features that help them understand that's a truck. That's actually something miraculous. And there is something very comforting about gender stereotypes for children. Children like to know that they have a strong daddy to protect them. 
They like to know that they have a nurturing, kind mommy who loves them. There's a safety and security in routine, pattern, and stereotype, and it has nothing to do with sexism. A second important concept is that we are purpose designed to survive. Whether you believe in God or evolution, everything born to this planet is specialized and purpose built for survival. A bee has a specific physical and cognitive design to enable it to fulfill its purpose. Whether its purpose is designing honeycomb, pollination, making honey, it has the physical and cognitive design to survive and it knows exactly what it has to do. It knows who its enemies are. It knows when to fly away. We're all born with the design and tools to survive. Now with humans, in common with other mammalian species, males and females are designed with different functions and those are absolutely essential for human survival. Now for that to work, we have to have both the physical cognitive and emotional design to fulfill the tasks that are given to us to ensure human survival. This is not political, but men are designed to hunt and protect for the species. Women are specifically designed to bear children, breastfeed, and nurture infants. A second important concept is that our survival roles give us existential satisfaction. So when any living organism does something that enhances its chances of survival. It experiences pleasure. And that's because our design wants to reward us for doing things that keep us alive to encourage us to survive and stay alive. So for example, when cats sharpen their claws or dogs chew bones, it actually makes them happy. Likewise, when you see bees buzzing around, pollinating flowers, doing the things that bees are supposed to do, they get a certain existential happiness from from that. You can see nature is humming with happiness because things are doing the things that they were designed to do. It's the same for humans. When we perform survival functions like eating, having sex, even something mundane like emptying a bladder or going to the toilet, it actually gives us an existential pleasure. And for that reason, men feel happy and fulfilled when they're protecting their families. And most women derive great existential fulfillment from falling pregnant, nurturing babies, and taking care of their families. There is nothing sexist about this. It is innate in our design to help us survive. And for the most part, again, it's something miraculous and beautiful for humans to enjoy. Most women enjoy motherhood. Now, when we talk about the purpose design of men and women, it's important to emphasize that all people are different. There is great diversity among humans. There are men who want to be pretty and wear dresses, and there are women who want to drive trucks and arm wrestle other truckies. There's nothing wrong with that. Understanding the common patterns and the common stereotypes will benefit the majority of cisgender heterosexual relationships out there, but it does nothing to kill off tolerance of diversity. In fact, tolerating diversity is all about tolerating people who are different to ourselves. It's not about tolerating people who are the same. It's very easy for tennis players on the same team to tolerate each other. They have the same interests. They're doing the same thing for the same purpose and they're alike. What's difficult in tolerance is tolerating people who are different to ourselves. And for that reason, recognizing that there is diversity actually promotes tolerance. Now, it's important to say that humans are very diverse also in their abilities. So women can hunt and protect but they're not as well designed for these functions as men are. And men can nurture young, but they're also not as well designed for this function as women. 
and they can't fall pregnant or breastfeed regardless of fashionable ideologies. It's simple biology, not politics. They just can't do it. But let's start with some of the physical differences. Men's bodies are designed to hunt and protect. They have larger, stronger bodies with more muscle mass, and they can take more punishment. It's foolish to challenge this. You can go to any Olympic Games and look at the times that men are running, the times they're swimming versus the women, the weights they're picking up. There's always going to be a propagandist who says, oh, but what about the exception? I knew this woman who was really strong and much stronger than her husband. Well, exceptions are by definition exceptions. They don't disprove rules, or we'd have to reduce the justice system, language, social order to anarchy and chaos. We depend on rules to survive, to create a civilized society, and we understand that there are exceptions to those rules. It doesn't prevent the recognition and creation of important rules, and it doesn't stop pattern recognition. This is a survival necessity. So there are women in the UFC that would beat me up. Sure. But most men are stronger, better fighters than their wives. And for the most part, most wives actually prefer that. And also, there are men out there who are better nurturers and parents and more emotionally sensitive than their wives. What we're talking about today is the general case that will help the majority of marriages. After all, normal in its true definition is all about the average case. And most people are average. That's what it means. But men being designed for hunting and protecting actually goes beyond just physical strength. Men also have better hand-eye coordination for certain tasks on average. So even if you look at Olympic target shooting or table tennis, activities that don't require greater physical strength, men are still better than women on average. It also happens that we're genetically designed to be hunters and protectors, so we're actually more expendable. How do I figure that? Well, Many mammalian species, when they breed, have numerous puppies or cubs or babies. Women only have one baby. So you need a woman for every baby that you create. But you can do with having one man and multiple women and still survive as a clan or a tribe. So men are actually more expendable. And we know this because if you look at human instinct, when a ship is sinking or something tragic is happening, Men are the ones usually staying behind and sacrificing themselves to protect women. Now, there is a somewhat misguided notion in society that suggests that women don't need male protection and that this somehow makes women look inferior if they need protection. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, men were created to provide security detail for women. It is precisely because women are so important we can't survive without women falling pregnant, and you need one woman for every baby born. So when you look at countries, who does a country survive security guards for? The most important people. So the fact that men provide security for women and protect them does not mean that women are less important. It actually means from a genetic and evolutionary meaning that women are more important and more valuable. There is an objective, undeniable truth that human survival depends on women to fall pregnant, breastfeed, and nurture infants. Women have uteruses, breasts to breastfeed, and softer, more welcoming bodies. In fact, someone once asked me why male fashion magazines are full of scantily clad women and women's fashion magazines are full of scantily clad women. And my reply was that men have hard, lumpy, hairy bodies that should not be seen by the light of day. And in fact, that's what my children always complain about. 
that my lap is so much less comfortable than my wife's. But there's a warmth of a mother's love and nurture that is something magical and worth honoring and protecting. You can even look in the wild at the incredible love and pride that a mother has in her babies in any mammalian species. And this is something beautiful that species depend upon to survive. Most of us have been lucky enough to experience this firsthand in our own mothers. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's no good giving creatures the physical design to survive. They also need the cognitive and emotional design. And in humans, this is no different. Men are designed to hunt and protect. So for that, men have a mind that is very unifocused. When you're out hunting or you're out fighting, it's kill or be killed. Your entire focus is on the target. And for that reason, men are no good at multitasking. They tend to hone in on a target and all of their focus is on that target. I'll talk a little bit about that later and how that affects marriages because it can be quite bothersome to wives when giving their husbands instructions. But understand that if men are fighting in a war or hunting a dangerous animal, they don't have mental space to worry about what kid's homework is due on what day or what's going on with their family, what time do kids need to be picked up from school. It's kill or be killed, and all of their focus needs to be on the task at hand. Because of our cognitive and emotional design, many women remarkably derive existential pleasure from falling pregnant and looking after infants. Men would never agree to this contract. Very few men would give up nine months of beer drinking to blow up like a beach ball, culminating in pushing a giant head out of a very small sensitive hole. If we were depending on men to fall pregnant, humanity would long since have become extinct. By comparison, when it comes to reproduction, men have the far easier task. It only takes a few minutes of not unpleasant work, but we take this job very seriously. But it doesn't get any better after childbirth for women because they are presented with a slave-driving parasitic infant that demands 24-7 care day after day after day. They have to give up on sleep, predictable mealtimes, and slog through the back pain, all the while giving and giving and giving to their demanding husbands and other children as well. Now, not being unsympathetic to this issue or suggesting that husbands shouldn't be taking care of their wives, but it is only because of the miraculous emotional and cognitive design of women that they're actually able to survive this and still be normal, balanced human beings. Because in other circumstances, we'd call this form of slavery torture. What's more, mothers are designed to be in tune with their babies. Regardless of my best efforts, my children and I always acknowledged that their mother was the superior parent, or in fairness, just superior full stop. I recall making my best efforts to manage a crying infant at night. One night, the baby cried. My wife went to his room, comforted him, and he went back to sleep. The next night, he cried again. My wife said, it's your turn. I got out of bed, went to the baby, and attempted to console him. He cried louder. Eventually, my wife came into the room in a huff and shouted at the baby, be quiet and go back to sleep. The baby fell asleep immediately. Once outside the room, she turned to me with a reprimanding look and said, couldn't you hear that he was being naughty? You should have told him to stop bothering us and go back to sleep. The next time I was sent to the crying baby, I told him firmly to go back to sleep. He cried louder. After a while, my wife came into the room, took one look, and patted the baby with soothing sounds. On our way back to bed, she turned to me in exasperation and said, 
How do you think that shouting at a distressed baby is going to help him settle? I was more confused than ever. I tried hard, but I could never achieve my wife's ability to understand infants. This is strange because according to my wife, I'm quite infantile myself. So you would think that I would have related better to their mindset. I never did learn the difference between a naughty cry and a distressed cry. To my ear, I could no more decipher the meaning of different humpback whale cries. Just as well that humpback whale mothers can because nobody else would volunteer to breastfeed a newborn that weighs a thousand kilograms. I must say that I also envy my wife's ability to multitask. I'll talk a little bit about the detail of what women really do later because it's not really multitasking, but they have a sense of what's going on in time and space with lots of different balls in the air, whereas I can only focus on one ball. So for me, when I used to take children to the park, I used to find it quite difficult when I was helping one child up a slide, only to turn around two minutes later and realize that I'd completely lost track of where the two-year-old was and he'd wandered off close to the road. On the other hand, my wife is capable of managing a Zoom work meeting, cooking three dishes at once, and she still knows exactly what time each child needs to be picked up from school. One simple way to put this is that men are mission machines and women are care machines. There have been several studies that demonstrate real differences between male and female brains. For example, scientists at the University of Pennsylvania studied 949 MRI scans and found that male brains have more connections within each hemisphere, while female brains have more interconnection between hemispheres. Based on these findings, Dr. Verma, an associate professor of radiology at the University of Pennsylvania, and one of the authors of the study stated about male brains, Men might overengage just one part of the brain. A speculative conclusion of the study is that men are more likely to resolve issues directly with their greater connections within a brain hemisphere, whereas women possessing more connections between the logical and intuitive hemispheres of their brains tend to apply more emotional sensitivity and intuition. There is even some scientific basis to the careers that men and women choose, having something to do with brain differences. Diane Halpern, past president of the American Psychological Association, stated in Sex Differences in Cognitive Abilities, it seemed clear to me that any between sex differences and thinking abilities were due to socialization practices, artifacts, and mistakes in the research, and bias and prejudice. She went on to say, after reviewing a pile of journal articles that stood several feet high and numerous books and book chapters that dwarfed the stack of journal articles, I changed my mind. She went on to explain that cognitive differences appear too early in life to be explained strictly by cultural socialization. Quoting her again, you see sex differences in spatial visualization ability in two and three month old infants, Halpin said. Infant girls respond to faces more readily, whereas boys tend to react more to changes in their visual environment. Research demonstrates that these differences persist into adulthood with women more oriented to faces and men more to things. It's probably this genetic predilection that leads many men to being far more fascinated by cars and gadgets than most women. Furthermore, it suggests an explanation as to why most engineers and plumbers are men and women dominate the social sciences at universities, with these discrepancies no less prominent even in the most egalitarian societies. In fact, often they become more pronounced. In other words, socialization does not reduce observed gender differences according to sociological evidence. Halpern also made note of a study involving 34 rhesus monkeys. Offered the choice between toys with wheels and plush toys, the males overwhelmingly preferred the toys with wheels, 
whereas the females chose the plush toys. If we stop politicizing gender differences, this makes sense because females are fundamentally designed for pregnant and rare infants. This is a programmed survival necessity. Arguments about gender equality and male obligations are not supported by denying this biological reality. Studies have also shown that women connect with emotional memories more rapidly and intensely than men do on average. The amygdala is a small brain structure associated with emotional experience and recollection. Noting that male and female brains tend to differ functionally more than structurally, it's fascinating that research by Cahill et al. using brain scans demonstrated that women light up the left side of the amygdala while recalling emotional memories, whereas men center this activity on the right-hand side only. This study has been replicated with the same results. As discussed, women tend to use their brains with more coordinated activity between hemispheres, and they make more rapid and intense emotional connections. Men, on the other hand, have a predilection for fascination with things and are much more prone to focused brain activity and attention. This provides a reasonable biological explanation why men are generally more able to enjoy sex without emotional connection and are often more focused on completing tasks with less emotional involvement. It is a common female complaint that their boyfriends and husbands do not connect emotionally as much as they would like. An unbiased, non-political observer would also note that girls and women tend to socialize in a different, more emotionally connected manner than men, who are more likely to get together to watch a game and drink beer than to hang out sharing their feelings. If anything, men like sharing their feelings by shouting very emotionally expressive words at the referee, and they feel less comfortable about being asked to talk about their feelings with their girlfriend and wife, particularly if this occurs during the ball game. This is not to say that men are not emotional or emotionally vulnerable. In fact, men have higher suicide rates than women. There are aspects of this that are sociological, but it is reasonable to speculate that physiological brain differences contribute. Most men process and manage emotion and grief differently to women. Females operate their brains with more connectiveness with emotion and each other. The male propensity to compartmentalize is not always ideal for managing depression and pain, and a retreat into isolation emotionally and socially increases suicide risk. We cannot assist these men by pretending that they are emotionally identical to women. Medical and psychological treatment should be individualized and must embrace, not deny, science. In fact, the more we understand science, the better the sexes can relate and get along, and the more informed our strategies will be to create an enriched societal environment that provides the best opportunities for male and female fulfillment. Progress has always succeeded best when based on science. When political causes pervert and censor science, the invariable outcome is suffering and adversity. I must make a confession at this point. My wife ruins gender stereotypes for everyone. As an aside, she's actually an emergency physician and medical inventor, but she's also a talented engineer, plumber, and electrician. I can barely change a light bulb, but she can fix just about anything, and she does it with a lot less commentary than I do. Years ago, my wife and I bought a small house in a peripheral beach suburb. After a while, my wife got tired of hemorrhaging money into the misbegotten investment. One day, the rental agent phoned us and requested that we get a plumber to replace a broken toilet. My wife, who was heavily pregnant at the time, declined and set out to fix it herself. The unsuspecting tenants answered their door, only to find a seven-month pregnant woman holding a monkey wrench standing on their doorstep. Their mouths must have been gaping when she declared, 
I'm here to fix the toilet. In next to no time, she successfully removed, replaced, and plumbed in a new toilet. She exited the house triumphantly with the tenant family staring on in disbelief. You can see why I wrote a book called Women Are Superior to Men. Now let's fast forward from science to modern challenges. In times gone by, women had no contraception, no baby formulas, and no modern sanitary pads. So for practical reasons, many women were either pregnant, menstruating, or breastfeeding at any given time. Notwithstanding the fact that society was very sexist and there was gender inequality, to some degree, the position of women was dictated by biology. Nowadays, we have the opportunity to make women prime ministers, CEOs, accountants, and there is nothing holding us back from women achieving equality in the workplace with men. But we are still challenged by certain realities. Firstly, this sudden seismic shift in societal convention hasn't really given men and women the chance to evolve. And we know that microevolution and adaptation takes many generations. Men and women have different skill sets. This issue is not black and white. But for example, whereas my wife took to managing babies and children seamlessly, I found it extremely challenging to be left home looking after the infants while she went to work. Those were the most exhausting days of my life, far worse than any medical shift I ever did. And I certainly coped far less well than she did. Her skill set was just much better than mine. In fact, she used to come home from work quite irritated when she found me showering and eating dinner at 11 p.m. I explained to her that I'd been giving all my attention to looking after the kids in the house the whole day, and I hadn't had any time to take care of myself or eat a meal. Sadly, often dinner at 11 p.m. was the first time I'd eaten the whole day. So when people talk about weaponized incompetence, the idea that men pretend to be less competent than women at home to get out of doing housework, I can tell you that the main victim of weaponized incompetence was myself. Now, adding to the challenge of equality in the workplace is the fact that the majority of women want to have children and willingly fall pregnant. They happen to be exceptionally good at nurturing their families. The question is whether it's desirable to discourage women from being excellent mothers, since this is such a major factor in producing functional, happy families. And who are we to make the value judgment that making money and having a successful career is more important than being a mother and wife and mothering a happy, functional family. Who gets to decide that for women? Don't they have the right to freedom of choice? Now, I want to create a clear distinction between what constitutes negative gender roles and sexism and what are normal gender stereotypes based on biological reality. Promoting the idea that women have a duty to stay home and take care of the kids and that they are obligated to do more housework than men is a sexist idea, and I certainly do not promote this. Any suggestion that women are inherently less valuable or inferior to men is sexist, and I do not support this either. They are no less talented at leading, at being successful, and in fact, there are numerous studies that show that gender diversity in the workplace leads to more successful teams. So in principle, I think all of us support the idea of equal opportunity and pay for women, although there is great complexity in the subject that I'll cover later. We all agree that women must be protected from sexual harassment and being made to feel uncomfortable by male sexual attention. 
And we all agree that women should not be held back by being female. But it's also important that we allow them freedom of choice. They should be allowed to prioritize being a wife and mother if that's their preference without the need for society to denigrate dedicated mothers or make them feel bad about what they're doing. But most of all, in our modern busy lives, women need a male partner who is going to take care of her, who's going to support her. And that means men do have to step up to the plate, take an equal share of the domestic housework, take care of the kids, because wives and children need dads who are not deadbeat guys. We have to step up to the plate because we love our wives, we want them to be happy, we love our children, and we want to be caring, dedicated fathers. Just because we are purpose-designed to survive does nothing to denigrate those who are different. Tolerance doesn't require that we cancel biology and genetics. True tolerance is not loving people for being the same. It's about loving those who are different and loving them because and despite their differences. One of the greatest secrets to survival is genetic diversity. So when we talk about embracing diversity, it's all about accepting and tolerating everyone, regardless of their differences. Thanks for listening to another episode of Happy Healthy Ever After. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And I'd love you to share this podcast with any friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested in the show. The content and opinions on these podcasts are my own and do not reflect the views of my employer or affiliates. Content is not intended as a substitute for professional health and relationship advice.